Welcome to the Littler Workplace Policy Institute podcast. Insider briefings on the latest legislative and regulatory developments affecting employers. The uh, importance of all this uh, it cannot be overstated. Uh, we have issues relating to uh, EEO1. We have the overtime and uh, regular rate notices uh, of proposed rulemaking. We have the Department of Labor and the National Labor Relations Board joint employment rulemaking. Uh, and we also have the OFCCP's uh, corporate scheduling announcement list. Among other things, uh, we also have some uh, legislation about to drop that we want to mention. Uh, so we have a lot to cover. Uh, those of you who don't know, the Workplace Policy Institute is uh, Littler's arm that uh, deals with government uh, relations of all types, including uh, in the courts, in the Congress, dealing with the executive branch, uh, as well as in the states. Uh, but today we're focused mostly on the federal level, even though a lot of activity happening in the states, we may get a chance to mention some of that uh, also. Uh, so let's get started and to kick it off, uh, our first uh, topic is going to be the EEOC's revised EEO-1 form, which uh, suddenly sprung back to life thanks to a uh, recent federal court action and uh, there's a lot of action going on in this case, a lot of questions coming from our clients is what are we supposed to do about this pay data aspect of the form. And here to tell us about it and uh, give the answer to those questions, such as they exist, is Jim Peretti, who's a shareholder uh, here in the D.C. office, uh, and he knows all things EEO and was uh, formerly chief of staff to uh, Commissioner Vicki Lipnick. So, Jim, tell us uh, what's happening with the EEO-1 form. All right. Thank you so much, Maury. Um, well, as most of the folks on the call are probably aware, uh, for decades the EEOC has required employers with 100 or more employees uh, and federal contractors with 50 or more employees and sufficiently large contracts to file what is known as Form EEO-1. Um, now, Form EEO-1 requires a covered employer to provide an annual snapshot of its workforce uh, sorted by job category and by race, ethnicity, and gender. So, for example, an employer might report that in a given year, it had uh, three female Hispanic workers in the professional category, five white male sales workers, and six black male mid-level managers, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, historically, EEOC has used this information to support its investigations, target the use of its resources, detect, detect trends, that sort of thing. Um, it's required to be kept strictly confidential under Title VII, uh, and EEOC will only release the data in aggregate form for analysis. Uh, and while employers may not be thrilled about having to file this form, I, I think the general consensus is having been around for a while is that it has not been the most burdensome requirement uh, in the universe. Uh, cut to September 2016, we're back in the Obama administration, uh, and the EEOC announces for the first time that it will now be collecting data on employee compensation. Uh, proposal was finalized and published near the very end of the administration, highly controversial and was approved along party lines. Uh, what EEOC would now seek to collect, in addition to the demographic information it was collecting on the old form, now known as Component 1, uh, would be a new Component 2 form detailing compensation and hours work for all employees, again, sorted by job category, race, ethnicity, and gender. Uh, and the first filing here would have been due in March of 2018. Uh, this proposed data collection was a dramatic increase in reporting burden. Uh, the form EEO1 went from 140 data points to literally over 3,300 data points, 
And that's a single report for a single location, let alone multi-employers, multi-location employers. Uh, final cost estimate on it was something upwards of $50 million on employers. Uh, during the EEO-1 review and approval process, many leveled like what I think is valid criticism. The data was not particularly helpful in rooting out pay discrimination in any meaningful way, and at a minimum that the cost of collecting the data was certainly not worth the benefit, and I, I know that's something many in the employer community shared. Uh, so February 2017, we're now in a new administration. Some employer associations petitioned the Office of Management and Budget. That's the agency that approves federal paperwork uh, that allows the government to collect data and ask them to stay Get rid of the, the dreaded comp, uh, component two. It's, it's useless information. It's too costly. Please make it stop. Uh, and that, in August of 2017, is what OMB does. It stays the, uh, the prior approval pending, you know, immediately pending further review. So essentially, the whole pay data collection concept appeared to be taken off the table. Uh, now, the traditional component one reporting was, of course, still going to be required. In fall of 2017, several employee advocate groups filed suit in federal court uh, challenging OMB's the stay of its prior approval. Um, and I think it's safe to say that many, many of us thought the suit was at best a long shot. Uh, but you know, even, even a broken clock is right twice a day. And at the beginning of March, the US District Court for the District of Columbia ruled that OMB's stay was unlawful under the APA and it was void and lifted. Um, George Judge ordered the prior approval back into effect and has taken the position that EEOC is required to collect this co component to comp data by May 31st of this year. EEOC, in turn, has argued that they simply can't do it. Um, they don't have the systems in place. They don't have the mechanics in place to collect it. Uh, they've offered to the court that they may be able to do so at great expense by September 30th of this year. But all of this is literally, as we sit here speaking, currently before a judge is expected to rule fairly shortly. So where do we stand today? Uh, it's clear that for that component one EEO-1 data, that is due on May 31st. Uh, that's a date that was bumped out because of the government shutdown, but that is something that needs to be filed. And Jim, we've had a question already sure. about that data. That, the, the component one data, that's based on 2018. Yes, the right? component one data, and we'll, we'll see what happens with component two. But yes, in, for component one, you look back to calendar year 2018, you take a, a snapshot period of one payroll period in the fourth quarter, and that's how you draw your numbers. And I expect if component two springs back into place, it'll be a similar sort of analysis. Uh, but we don't know yet what's going to be required with respect to component two. Um, it seems increasingly likely the judge is going to seek to have some requirement of comp data reported, but whether that's 2018, whether she also seeks to get retrospective 2017 data, what's the due date on that, uh, that is yet to be, you know, yet to be determined. So. Obviously, we will be alerting our clients ASAP to any development as it occurs. Folks should certainly stay tuned. Um, and I expect that whatever the outcome is here, particularly if EEOC determines it has to collect this information, um, they will push information out to the regulated community as well and try to get stuff on the website as quickly as possible. Um, they were very good about doing that after the shutdown, and I expect, expect they would again. So that's where we stand as of today. Okay, and uh, with regard to the litigation, and uh, basically, should people be sitting tight, or should they be getting ready to file? I, I, May, September. I, I expect that we will know very, very shortly what the judge is going to require of employers. Um, I, I think the EEOC has made a very compelling case that requiring it by May 31st simply is not possible. Um, a court can order oranges to grow on apple trees, but it, that doesn't mean it's going to happen. 
So for the very near future, I would say be sitting tight, but be ready to, to move fairly quickly if and when we get a final ruling from the court on what data is going to be due and when that data is going to be due. And as some of you know on the phone, and uh, Jim, you referred to it, the business community has stepped up its efforts. I think people were sitting back originally, figuring the Justice Department could handle it, since, particularly since there's not supposed to be a private right of action to challenge an OMB proceeding. But somehow they've gotten the right judge on the plaintiff's side, and uh, that's, where, that's why it's, uh, it's suddenly become a big issue. But uh, I think uh, there are going, they're continuing efforts to challenge it. There are also continuing efforts to get the White House and others to uh, take additional regulatory steps. So we think uh, all of those things are possible. So thanks for that. Now, we've had a couple of questions come in on some housekeeping matters uh, aspects uh, that I neglected to mention at the start. First of all, you are able to type questions, but you are all, you're all muted. Uh, with, uh, I think we have close to a thousand people on this call, so it would be uh, awkward to say the least if everybody started verbalizing their questions. But you, most of you have found the, uh, the question box. Uh, and some of you have said, uh, you know, are there going to be detailed PowerPoints? Can you print them out? This was originally designed to be a phone call, basically a phone conference call. The numbers grew, so we put it on the WebEx platform. But we're not looking to, uh, uh, that you won't see a detailed PowerPoint, although, all these subjects have been recently covered in Littler's, uh, we call them ASAPs. Uh, these are our client alerts. If you're not on the mailing list to get those, be sure to get on the mailing list. Uh, and uh, in fact, we have one about the EO1 and uh, every subject we're covering today, we have quite recently put out something in writing. Uh, so, but meanwhile, we're tracking your questions as they come in and um, uh, we will continue. I guess here, Jim, we, before we move on, we've uh, somebody we've already submitted the EEO one survey for 2018. Are we required to resubmit with compensation data? Uh, the, I think the answer to that is unclear. I expect that the answer will be no. That your EEO one has already been submitted. You may be required to submit an additional comp component two form. I would be very surprised if the agency took the position that no, no, you have to go back and submit it all as one data file. But again, I think once the rules of the road are known and made clear, which I expect to happen very, very quickly. Uh, I think the agency will make very clear very soon exactly what's required. My prediction is under the facts you present is that no, you'll be required, if comp data is collected, you'll be required to file an additional component too, but not to refile the data as a, as a single filing. Some, someone else is uh, pretty into this subject because they're aware that the OMB approval was uh, for only three years and it's supposed to expire September 30 of 2019. And in fact, that's in the issue, uh, the plaintiffs in the case are arguing that that uh, should be extended that date, in effect told because of the stay that OMB had put in place. Yet another issue that the court is going to have to resolve, others are saying, I know we believe, the court doesn't have the authority to change that effective date, but that's in play. Everything's in play. All right, well, we could go on. We could certainly spend the entire hour on the EO1. It's a very complex subject, but um, and it means a lot to people right in the here and now. Equally important, if not more so, though, is uh, the stuff that's just been coming out of the Labor Department, one, two, three, after sitting on it, many, uh, you know, for people felt for, for two years. Uh, the secretary, uh, to his credit, um, after getting a lot of flack, uh, has produced uh, some very significant uh, rulemakings. And here to tell us about those, at least uh, the first two of them, is uh, Tammy McCutcheon uh, here in our D.C. office, who was the wage hour administrator during the George W. Bush administration and, and did the last rewrite of the white collar overtime rules. So, Tammy, why don't you start off with what's 
happening with Great. the new effort to rewrite the overtime rule. Yeah, I'm calling these three rules out of the wage and hour division the DOL trifecta. So we have proposed rules, three of them that were published over four weeks in for overtime, the regulated pay, and the joint employment regulation is the most recent one, which uh, um, Maury is going to talk about. So you've probably heard about overtime already. Um, so I'm going to be brief on that one and just uh, talk a little bit about reactions. Um, the uh, obviously the last time that that this it's all about the minimum the salary levels that are required to qualify for a white collar exemption executive administrative professional and uh, and computer um, outside sales does not is not affected by this um, in 2004 we set the salary level at uh, its current 455 weekly 23660 uh, applying a methodology. Uh, that set it at the 20th percentile of salaried employees in, in retail industry in the South. Of course, uh, the DOL moved away from that significantly in 2016, issued a final rule uh, which would have required overtime pay to every employee earning below about $48,000. Mari, of course, represented trade associations and got the permanent injunction to stop that rule in 2016, which we are all still grateful for. So this, um, but what's really interesting is the litigation on that is not currently still, it's still pending, right, Maury? Correct. It's still there. Um, because the Trump administration actually appealed Maury's uh, getting that permanent injunction to the Fifth Circuit and then asked the Fifth Circuit to stay the litigation pending further regulatory action. So this is what this is all about. The new proposal would set the minimum salary level for exemption to around 35K annually. Um, and they used, they went back to my methodology in 2004 and, and set that level by the, at the 20th percentile of salary earners in the South and retail. Um, what we're most, what we're hearing is most people are okay with 35K, um, except for some of the small businesses that have been, um, that have been attending the Small Business Association's advocacy uh, events on this reg, still think it's too high. Um, and actually, I think it might be a little bit too high myself because the data that DOL used includes salary information from the DMV area. That's the District of Columbia, Maryland, and Virginia. Those are three of the top 10 highest salary, average salary and household income areas in the country. Um, so if we excluded those, that sort of data, we'd be more like at 32. Um, they have also, in this rule, um, um, do like in the 2016 rule, they allow an employer to make to use bonuses and commissions to make up um, to 10% of that minimum salary level. The good change is instead of it being limited to only quarterly bonuses, this new proposal limits it, allows you to use any annual bonuses. Um, but the question is why 10%? Right? Why not 20% or 50%? And DOL doesn't really have an answer to that. Um, the other thing that in a recent um, meeting that DOL had with House Republican staffers, um, they admitted that if you make a mistake in a, trying to apply this 10% rule and you are short your employee by even a dollar, that the impact will be that the employee would not be exempt for the prior whole year and you'd owe overtime back wages. So. One, I would very much caution employers who think this 10% rule is a great thing. 
Um, one other thing is that there is like a, you get one pay period to make up any payments that you're short. And I just think that's not long enough. We need more time. Given the intense, awful consequences of getting it wrong, we need DOL to provide employers with more time to get it, uh, get it corrected. Another thing that's um, sort of uh, uh, not so good is that the Department of Labor proposes to increase the total annual compensation required under the highly compensated test to 147K. That is higher than the 2016 rule. Uh, DOL applied the same methodology as the Obama administration um, did, and that this is where they tell me they got, and that is setting this highly compensated um, level at 90, the 90th percentile of all salaried employees. So questions we plan to ask is why 90%, why not 80%, so we have 20% in the bottom and 20% at the top, and why use all salaried employee data? Why not use that same data, that same data set? that's based on retail in the South. So even uh, those areas and in in lower uh, profit industries can take advantage of the highly compensated rule. Uh, finally, they have proposed, they, they have uh, not again proposed the idea of automatic updates without notice and comment rulemaking to the salary levels. So they, are, they have committed to do um, notice and comment rulemaking in the future. They've stated that they want to review the salary levels every four years using that 2004 methodology um, and ask for comments about whether they should build that into the regulations themselves. So that's, uh, that's over time. The more recent one is regular rate. And as some of you may know, um, the overtime pay rate is not 1.5 times an employee's hourly rate. It's 1.5 times an employee's regular rate of pay. And that includes all types of remuneration. So, and, and Sam, before you get too far into the regular okay. rate, when you mentioned the, the comp, uh, someone had asked about the uh, first to repeat the number. But right. uh, also there's confusion often about, you know, what if they don't meet that number? Does that mean they lose the exemption, which is not necessarily the case? Right. Well, if you make, you, you have to be paid at least that number to be exempt. And then if you're over that number, you still have to meet the job duties tests for exemption. Um, and so the number is um, it's $35,309 a year. You might ask, why can't they just give us an even number so we can actually remember it? Right. Um, I don't know why. But for the highly comp. For the highly comp, it's about 147. And for that, you could still qualify yes. as exempt under the 35,000. Well, you're just losing the shortcut. Right. Uh, There's a very short duties test. It's a much less burden for employers to establish if for employees who make over that 147K. Um, um, and it's, it's, it's just wait, it's, it's, I think it's too high and we'll be working to try to get that down. I don't know if we'll be successful or not. Um, by the way, um, word is we will have a confirmed wage and hour administrator maybe even this week. Um, Cheryl Staunton's the nominee and her closure vote was filed last Friday. Great. So that will be cool. All right, so um, regular rate. Um, regular rate is an area that's very wage and hour geeky. Um, and, but um, I would say 98% of the employers actually get it wrong. Um, here's the issue. Every type of compensation you pay to an employee, must, you must pay overtime on that. You must include it in the regular rate unless it's specifically excluded by a section of the FLSA called Section 7E. Um, so like premium payments for uh, employee benefits are excluded and holiday pay and vacation pay are excluded. 
What this regulation does is to provide more information and more examples to employers about types of compensation that you do not have to include in the regular rate of pay. And I think this is great um, because, for example, we have seen lawsuits um, um, against employers who provide tuition reimbursement to their employees, claiming that they should have paid overtime on tuition reimbursement. In this regulation, uh, DOL is clarifying that you do not have to pay overtime on wellness benefits, such as gym memberships or fitness classes or on-site specialist treatment. You do not have to pay overtime on um, employee discounts, on payout to employees of unused sick leave, um, um, of uh, tuition reimbursement and repayment of student loans. So, yeah, believe it or not, there was an employer who repaid some of their employees' student loans, and they got sued for it, claiming they should have paid overtime on it. Um, also, um, so there's a lot of great stuff in this reg. I, I, it's, a, I, it's a great proposal. Um, I think my reaction to it is what you got there is really good, including, for example, clarification that employee of the month awards do not have to be paid, um, included in, in overtime, or employee spot bonuses um, don't have to be included in the regular rate. Um, they've missed a couple things here, uh, Maury, in particular. This is the regulation section which addresses the fluctuating work week. Um, and there's a big legal split in the cases out there about whether, actually, let me back up, fluctuating work week. It's when you agree with an employee that their salary is their straight time pay for all hours worked, no matter how many, and therefore you're only paying 0.5 for the overtime hours rather than 1.5. So it's one of the cheapest ways to pay overtime. But there's a split in the courts about whether um, an employee paid under the fluctuating work week can also receive bonuses and commissions or whether or not their compensation must be limited just to salary. Um, and the Bush, at the end of the Bush administration, they had uh, proposed regulations to clarify that, F, uh, that fluctuating work week employees could receive bonuses. Uh, the Obama administration came in and they withdrew that language, um, and this um, proposal was silent, so I'd like to see the proposal basically just take the language from the Bush administration proposed rule and put it back in. Um, I'd also like to see this rule address um, issues like public transit subsidies that a lot of employers are providing these days in order to encourage employer, employees to take public transportation and childcare benefits. We have a lot of employers who are providing on-site childcare or subsidies for childcare, and this regulation doesn't say anything about this. Um, here's the due dates. Comments are due on overtime on May 21st. Comments are due on the proposed um, regular rate rules on May 28th. And you can file comments by going to regulations.gov and just search for wage and hour division regulations with comments due in the, in the next 90 days. And of course, we are filing comments on behalf of uh, a number of our clients, uh, a number of our trade associations. Many of you are in one or trade association or multiple associations. Uh, if you're wondering and not sure uh, whether your particular group is filing comments, uh, let us know, contact us. We can uh, steer you in the right direction, or if you want, a number of our clients want to file their own individual comments. Uh, that's what WPI is here for, is to give voice uh, to the needs of our clients. And uh, with you've mentioned the two uh, comment due dates. What about completion of the rule? A lot of people are concerned. Uh, are they going to get it done in time? Well, you know, they have to get overtime done. That's the most important one, because if they don't get it done, and we have a change in party in the White House, we could quickly be back to that 48,000 level 
um, if the Department of Justice and DOL starts litigating that and defending the 2016 rule. Well, and it's so important. They have to get it done quickly in order to avoid that problem, but at the same time, they have to get it done right. Correct. Because if they fail, what we're seeing, and it's been in the papers, a lot of uh, the, the various agencies rule changes have been challenged in the courts right. and uh, in the EO1 uh, issue uh, challenge yep. from the plaintiff's side and they uh, were able to turn it around. So, you know, they need to not only finish it quickly, but finish it right so that it holds up. Right. And that's why the comments are so important. It is important. And what DOL has said about overtime is they would like to have this rule effective January 1, 2020. So that's effective. That means you have to comply with it by 2020. I think that's a tough, tough goal. I think more likely sometime in the first quarter 2020. Um, but the, I think the key for our listening audience today is that in order to complete the, the overtime regulation that fast, DOL probably will not be able to give you like six months to come into compliance, right? You'll probably only have two or three months to come into compliance. And that's why I am urging employers to actually start the process of, coming in, uh, of looking at compliance issues on overtime right now pull in data on employees who are earning, you know, like 40000 and below, try to determine what's least costly for you to reclassify them or to give them a raise. Um, and also, you know, it's a really good time just to look at your job duties, right? Are the employees who are in your first couple um, entry level of exempt pay grades, um, are they performing the duties that qualify them for an exemption? So start preparing now because you all might only have two or three months to come into compliance. Right. Preparing, but we're not saying to go ahead and Don't do it yet. Don't just, <laughs> just be ready. Only a proposed right. rule. Right. Especially okay. get, get your, you know, get your the leaders of your organization um, ready that they might have to give some salary increases or do reclassification. Right. Okay. Well, let's uh, look at the uh, the third issue. And uh, well, there is a question here about whether you can, if you're in a union environment, can you bargain over what makes up the overtime rate? No. Uh, yeah. You can you can pay more than the FLSA. So in that sense, you can. Or California law, for example, requires, but you cannot pay less. You also can't bargain over what you include in the in the regular rate for the other ones. And I've been involved in cases where CBA. I just settled a $1 million DOL investigation for a per diem that was set forth in a collective bargaining agreement, which the employees were paid even when they had no business expenses. And the DOL said, that's a fake per diem, you owe money every time an employee got a CBA required per diem when they weren't traveling. So um, collective bargaining agreements, except for very limited circumstances, do not trump, sorry, the uh, FLSA. Well, and something reminded me, well, when you mentioned California, a, lot, a number of the states had already, or after the overtime rule was stopped, they raised their own state law in Correct. terms of what the minimum is. Mm -hmm. So, uh, New York and California, don't worry, you're already over the DOL's proposed minimum salary level for right. exemption. So there will be no impact on employees in those two states. Okay. Uh, well, uh, enough about those. Not enough. It could go on forever. But uh, we've got yet another proposed rule, and I'll talk about this briefly. And we're talking about joint employment. And we have now proposals uh, from both the National Labor Relations Board, which was getting most of the attention over the last couple of years, uh, and now the U.S. Department of Labor. They actually deal with different things, uh, different issues, and yet the joint employment uh, question is a common problem. 
under both the National Labor Relations Act as well as the uh, overtime law, the Fair Labor Standards Act. Uh, and so the NLRB uh, comments have already been uh, filed. If you missed the deadline, well, sorry, sorry, but <laughs> it's, it's too late. Uh, don't worry, there's going to be more to come in that. Uh, it's, it's gotten into a very convoluted mess between a Court of Appeals decision and the Browning-Ferris case, which partially upheld the Obama uh, expanded doctrine of joint employment. Uh, but then the NLRB came out with a proposal that basically said, we want to narrow it again. Uh, and using uh, the big questionnaires, whether indirect uh, control or potential control is really the type of uh, uh, control that matters in the joint employment context. Uh, so now comes along the Department of Labor, which many people did not even realize had regulations uh, dealing with uh, joint employment. Uh, the Labor Department over the year, over recent years, in fact, in the Obama years, had issued guidance and it issued memoranda that were not, did not have the weight of regulations, and uh, those were pulled very early in the Trump administration, so those were retracted, but there were still regulations on the books, and in fact, there were regulations that concerned people because they used language like that two employers had to be completely disassociated from themselves in order, from each other, in order to avoid a uh, joint employer finding. Uh, and these regulations had not been updated for decades. And so the uh, uh, department decided to go ahead and uh, consider an update. And that's what they've done, uh, issuing it on April 1st, uh, sense of irony, I guess. Uh, they went ahead with a proposed rule, and that's what we're looking at. This rule has comment due date of June 10th. Uh, so it's uh, since the publication in the Federal Register. Uh, what it does is it proposes a four-factor test for joint employment, which uh, harkens to a case in the Ninth Circuit called the Bonnet case, uh, which was one of the it had become one of the more commonly used tests. And then a number of circuit courts had come out with newer tests that were worse for the business community. So this test is as fair as most. Um, but on top of that, there's a lot more clarification in this proposed rule. They really went to considerable lengths to try to give specific examples to deal with a variety of factors that have been raised. And I think most importantly, in some ways, and Tammy, I know you feel strongly about this, is uh, identifying which section of the Act, the Fair Labor Standards Act, is really at issue. Because when you read some of these court decisions, they rely heavily on the language about suffer or permit to work, which is broader language than appears in any other statute. But as has been pointed out, that's in a section of the act that's talking about the definition of employee as opposed to the definition of employer. Joint employment, the uh, department is saying, is saying in the proposal, should be an issue about the definition of employer. So we like that approach, uh, and there are many things to like in this uh, proposed rule. Of course, there are some questions about the different examples they've given and some issues that they really haven't given examples about. They go out of their way to say that franchising by itself does not make you more or less likely to be a joint employer. That right there is an important step forward uh, for the very significant uh, franchising industry. Uh, and so uh, many other issues are addressed. Staffing is addressed, uh, general contractor, subcontractor relationships. So many different industries are affected by joint employment um, that this will be a, a very significant rule. As with all, 
all these other proposed rules have to get it done in time, and then they have to do it in such a way that it's upheld uh, by the courts. And that's why uh, the comments are so important uh, to help build the record, what they've been criticized for in these cases that have come out on other rules is just not giving enough attention to justify the reversal of what the Obama administration did. And there's, there's case law out there that says uh, a government agency can change its mind and it can undo what was done, but it has to explain why. And it has to be a rational reason, not an arbitrary reason. And they've been losing, uh, not just the Labor Department, but other government agencies over the perception that they've taken shortcuts and have not uh, gone into the depth necessary. So that's why we're, we're filing comments on behalf of a number of coalitions and groups uh, on joint employment as well as overtime. And a big part of it is to find out, get date, hard data in front of them to justify uh, what they are proposing where we support it, or in a few instances to uh, uh, challenge it where, where we don't support it. So um, those are uh, issues that are going to be coming up with the uh, Department of Labor. Uh, and, uh, but there's one other aspect of the Department of Labor to talk about, and that is the uh, Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs. And you government contractors uh, should know what I'm talking about, although we recently had a government contractor client ask what that agency was. But, um, uh, but we do have someone here who not only knows what the agency was, but, uh, is, but what it's doing. Lance Gibbons, shareholder in our D.C. office, uh, a guru and expert in all things government contract compliance, uh, is here to tell us uh, about one of their somewhat controversial new initiatives, not really new initiative, but that they've redone this year. So, Lance, tell us about it. Awesome. Well, thank you, Maury. Um, so what we, are, we are obviously saving the, uh, the best for last here. And as Maury mentioned, um, if you are not a federal contractor, you can, uh, you can tune me out. Yeah, um, but don't go away because don't we go have away. a few more items to cover. <laughs> but you can tune me out. Um, so the, uh, the OFCCP issued its corporate scheduling announcement list on uh, Monday, March 25th. And, and this was new because for the first time they did not send out the scheduling announcement letters to the establishments, they instead just posted the list on their website. And the list is, is designed to give contractors a 45-day head start on any compliance evaluation that might come down the pike. So the OFCCP will not send out any actual scheduling letters until May 9th at the earliest, but typically they will call an establishment to make sure they have the right contact information before they they actually send the letter out. So you sort of get a second heads up at that point in time, if you will. If you take a look at the actual scheduling list, there are 3,500 establishments that have been identified on the list. And for the first time, they actually broke down the different types of reviews. And so they are going to do 500 focused reviews, 500 compliance checks, 83 corporate management compliance evaluations, which are the old glass ceiling audits, and about 2,417 establishment reviews, which are what we have been calling the traditional compliance evaluation. Uh, the Section 503 focused review is new. Uh, that's something that the OFCCP gave us a, a heads up about earlier um, this year. And it's, it's important because it's only going to look at your affirmative action program for individuals with disabilities. It's going to be focused on your corporate headquarters. 
and it's also going to include a guaranteed on-site sometime after September 1st of 2019. Another question that's come out is, are, are, there, are there any sort of industries that the OFCCP is focused on? And the OFCCP has been good the past couple of CSAL lists in giving us a little bit of a insight into their scheduling methodology. And they've said that if you're in an agriculture, manufacturing, or wholesale trades industry, that you were likely to be targeted for an audit this year, and about a third of their list is made up of establishments from, uh, from, from, from those three industries. And so if you uh, don't know where to find the CSAL list or you have any questions about it, uh, feel free to, uh, to reach out to me by email and I can send you the list or uh, point you to the, uh, the right direction. Uh, do you, Lance, do we have any indication what, what order they're going in when they do these uh, evaluations? So as I mentioned, uh, the, uh, the OFCCP included a scheduling methodology, and they've indicated in that document that they're going to conduct the compliance checks, the CMCE reviews, and also their FAP reviews, which are the Functional Affirmative Action Plans first. And then they're going to go to the Section 503 in the individual establishment reviews secondarily, which lines up with their uh, with with the guidance I mentioned before that they're not going to actually come on site for a Section 503 review until some point in time after September 1st. And somebody's asked, I think you mentioned it, but where where do they find again the list of the targeted companies? So it's actually on the OFCCP's website. If you go to their website, they have one of those scrolling front pages, and one of the first two headlines is the CSAL list has been released. You click on that and then one of the four links will be the actual scheduling letter or scheduling announcement list and it will come up as an Excel document and then you can search for your company's name right there. Okay, uh, well thanks for that. Uh, now we're going into bonus time. Uh, not very much of it, but uh, we didn't feel like we could uh, conclude without mentioning some of the legislation that's been uh, uh, proposed uh, quite recently in the House. Uh, in particular, uh, the latest iteration of what they're calling the Workers' Freedom to Negotiate Act, which uh, shows what uh, you could be up against, although no one really is expecting it to pass uh, this year. Uh, but in a new Congress, uh, in a couple of years, they're, they're really teeing it up. Uh, things like uh, civil monetary penalties for violations of the Labor Act, uh, a total uh, change in the independent contractor, uh, issue, uh, expanding the coverage of the act, uh, allowing uh, liquidated damages, allowing them to go to federal court, uh, arbitration for the first collective bargaining agreement, it was sort of a redux of uh, the old card check bill, uh, one of the sign signature features of which was mandatory arbitration. Uh, meanwhile, even though they want mandatory arbitration there, there's Me Too legislation that's uh, out there in which several different bills are pending to try to do away with arbitration in the harassment context. We're also seeing that uh, more and more at the state level. And in fact, uh, a lot of our activity until this uh, recent influx of uh, Labor Department proposals has been at the state level, where as uh, under the Trump administration, there was a deregulatory push at the state level. We were seeing unprecedented uh, uh, progressive legislation on things like uh, predictive scheduling, uh, drug testing legalization and the impact on uh, uh, drug, uh, drug use legalization impacting drug testing. 
the harassment bills, uh, the paid leave uh, patchwork quilt of laws all over the country uh, with apparently no standardization. We expect those things to continue. We are involved in a number of coalitions around the country uh, challenging different state laws and rules in these and other areas. And so if you're interested in knowing more about it and whether there's anything going on in your particular state, feel free to get in touch with any of us. Uh, and so with that, um, unless there's some exciting last uh, questions, um, and um, well, here's a, a final one for you, Lance. Uh, in reading through the list on OSCCP website, my interpretation was that if your company name wasn't on the list, that doesn't mean you are free of a potential desk audit or 503 focused review, correct? Correct. I mean, the, yes, the OFCCP could still audit you if there is a complaint filed or if you are subject to a pre-award compliance evaluation, which would be you receive a contract valued at, I believe it's $10 million or more, then you could also be scheduled for a uh, compliance evaluation. So just because your name's not there doesn't mean you're free and clear. Okay. Well, thanks very much. Uh, you're all very respectful and quiet audience, um, and, uh, but you asked a very good question. So uh, we will be back in touch when uh, developments uh, warrant it, and meanwhile, you know where to reach us. Thanks again. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.